This is Sermon Smith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation. My name is John Chalman. My guest today is Laura Truax. Laura is the pastor of LaSalle Street Church, which is in the north side of Chicago. Before we got started, Laura told me that she is an extrovert, and that comes through here. I don't know if that's just her uh, very effective personality or if it is just her love of preaching, but you will definitely hear that coming through as we talk today. Uh, it goes without saying that I enjoyed this conversation, as I do all of them. My partner today is Logos Bible Software, which Laura mentions as well. Logos is a Bible software that I use and that I love. I use it on my laptop. I use it on my mobile devices. Uh, I've even been, even this morning, watching my son at a soccer camp, and I've been doing some sermon prep sitting right there on my iPad as I'm able to go through a stack of commentaries, take some notes on the parable of the ten virgins, which I will be preaching on soon. If you're uh, interested in Logos, you can get a 10% off coupon and support the podcast by going to logos.com slash sermonsmith, and you'll find a coupon there, and then a portion of your purchase will also come back to support the podcast. Thanks for considering that, and uh, I hope it's helpful, and I hope it's useful for you as well. Also want to say thank you to <laughs> CMBGLG. Uh, I'm sure that that stands for something, but uh, you left a podcast or you left a nice uh, review on iTunes. Thank you for that. And for anyone who can take the time to do that, that is yet another way that people find the podcast. That would be great. And if you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support it, you can go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith, P-A-T- reon.com slash sermonsmith where you can pledge a dollar, two dollar, five dollars per episode to help support the costs and the time that is put into this. Thank you. Tell us a a little bit about your experience, but tell us about the context of LaSalle Street Church and where you preach. Yeah, well first, thanks for uh, having me on the show. This is fun and it's fun to talk about uh, church. I think church really matters and uh, and preaching really matters. And so I'm, in, I'm really glad to have an opportunity to talk with your listeners a little bit yeah, about this. Yeah, um, LaSalle Street Church is a non-denominational church. It started as an offshoot of Moody Church way back in the day. Um, Moody had uh, purchased our building that we're in from a group of Lutherans uh, back in the 20s and 30s, and uh, we were uh, a mission congregation for for Moody Church, uh, primarily for Italian-Americans. We border Cabrini-Green housing complex for decades. That was our our border to the West, and um, so that had a fair number of Italian-Americans living in it, and uh, our church was almost completely composed of Italian-Americans. In the 60s, uh, a youth director from Moody Church uh, was sent here to essentially close close our church down. Uh, at that point, uh, World War II was firmly over, and uh, Italian-Americans were now being accepted into the mother church as members, and Moody didn't really have uh, so much of a need for a mission church any longer. But Bill Leslie, our pastor at the time, uh, from the youth director from Moody, uh, started to get really excited about what urban ministry could look like and uh, really started a very activist, missional kind of outreach in the community that was very incarnational and very neighborhood-based. And, uh, and the long and the short of it is that we started uh, on a road that Moody wasn't really so comfortable with at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, they ended up selling us our building for a dollar. 
And from that wow. point, I know it's a, it's a super cool story. And it's, do they have any buildings in Austin maybe? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Huh? <laughs> um, but it, it's, uh, it speaks, I think, to the genesis of this church. I mean, the DNA then uh, was kind of um, established as being a very activist uh, in the community, justice oriented, discipleship making kind of place. And uh, so we're non-denominational still. Uh, we're completely independent, although we have a big nod toward the Covenant Church uh, and okay. use a lot of their resources. And that's kind of our our uh, makeup as well, is that we have a, plenty of Covenant and RCA folks here. Um, but uh, it still tends to attract a lot of very activist kind of people from all sorts of persuasions. Uh, we're on the north side of Chicago, uh, so uh, 1300 uh, North is our, um, you know, north destination, and uh, divisions are cross street, and uh, we tend to attract um, just some really great people who are very active about living out their faith. And how long have you been in the senior pastor role there? Yeah, since 2014, uh, or sorry, oh, okay. uh, no, not since 2014, sorry, 2004. It's been okay. 12 years, <laughs> yeah. Um, I know, time flies, right? Um, I came on staff here in 99. We had a huge change of leadership in 01 and 02 and uh, did a search for a senior pastor. I threw my name into the ring as well and uh, in 2004 uh, took on that role. And so when you threw your hat into the ring, was that, uh, was that a big step for the church to consider a woman in that role or would that have been not yeah. even really a, an issue? Yeah, you know, in some ways it was a natural progression. Uh, fortunately, LaSalle since the 70s had always had women uh, serving in equal roles as men, uh, which is pretty cool. They'd had a team arrangement through the 70s and 80s. Uh, and, uh, and so in some ways it was a natural step. In other ways it was huge because they'd never called a woman as a senior pastor. And so I was the first one in that capacity. And probably I was as reluctant to take on the role as I think some in the church were reluctant to take the step. I mean, it, it was a great fit in many ways, but I was concerned about we're still an evangelical church. We're still clearly in the evangelical umbrella. And uh, even though we call ourselves progressive evangelicals, that's kind of a big step, you know, still in, in our world. Um, and I was concerned. I thought that that might put us a little bit too far to the left for our tribe. And uh, I don't know if that's been the case or not. It's hard for me to get a read on that, but it's been a good fit for me and for the church. Oh, good. What kind of, uh, what kind of heritage or tradition did you come out of? Yeah, interesting. I became a Christian at a tent revival in the South. I mean, it was the wow. whole Elmer Gantry moment, uh, you know, the dark night, the sweaty preacher, the mosquitoes, the whole bit, you know. Um, so I did not have any framework for women in pastoral ministry uh, until I came to this church. I uh, I did my MDiv in Chicago. There's a consortium of divinity schools, uh, mm -hmm. seminaries called the uh, Acts Program. And so I did my MDiv program at all sorts of different schools. Um, my language at McCormick, my ecclesiology up at Garrett and Methodist School. I got my degrees uh, from Loyola, uh, the Jesuit school that was part of all this uh, mix, and did not dream I would be in pastoral ministry. I really thought I I would be writing prayers. I'm a writer by background and thought that I would be doing much more of an introspective spirituality component. Um, and you it's already been... told me you're an extrovert before we recorded. 
but you had <laughs> had introspective. Oh, I can't even say it. Introspective ambitions. Yeah, you know, um, to me, that's where God often meets me is in silence. And so for the last uh, 20 years or so, I've done a week-long silent retreat every year. It's part of my own spiritual disciplines, and I need it as an extrovert. And I think I need it as a Christian, too. So, uh, yeah, I, there's a whole side of me that's very much introspective and, and <laughs> you know, like claiming silence as, uh, as a pathway to uh, spiritual growth. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, how did you then in the midst of all that, how did you find your own calling, your own giftedness to preach? Uh, you know, since opportunities for women are not common. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I heard a few women preach in the in the 90s. And um, and for the first time, I felt like I'm hearing my voice up there. Instead of all these lame golf analogies and, you know, these ridiculous sports imagery, they were, they were, and I know that's totally sexist to say that, but I felt like for decades I had heard, uh, I had heard a voice that was not really my experience as a person, as a human being, you know? And then I heard a woman, uh, preach and she talked about, uh, how much she loved her children. And she talked about tucking them into bed at night. And she talked about cooking and talked about, and, and again, it, it's not gender specific. It's just that that was more my experience. And when I heard her speak and I heard the lessons God was teaching her through these parts of life that were my parts too, something in me really leapt up. And I thought, I love this. And I, I, I didn't put it all together. I didn't put it together like, oh, you should be doing this or anything like that. It's just that there was something in me that was so excited. And, uh, and from that point on, when I would see a, when I was traveling and I would see a woman uh, listed as a speaker for the day in whatever church I happened to be in, I got really excited about that. And, uh, and then I did a deeper dive into some of the texts that talk about the role of women in the church. And I I realize there's many different ways of understanding those texts and the, the cultural setting that Paul was speaking in. And so it was a gradual thing for me to, to imagine that women could be full-fledged, you know, pastors. I mean, doing, doing the gamut of exegetical preaching and leadership in a church setting. Um, so then when, uh, when, uh, this job at LaSalle came opened and, um, and I was just wrapping up my time in seminary, uh, I had read in their, in their stuff that they were only looking for a woman that, uh, they had a, the woman that they had on staff was going back to university of Chicago to do a PhD. And, and I thought, you know what, I think that could be me. Hmm. Um, and it's that, kind of thing. You know, God's voice is not always the dramatic thunderclap, right? It is a still small voice. And and whatever was leaping up in me was the same thing that had leapt up years ago when I'd heard a woman preach for the first time. And I thought, well, we'll see. We'll see if this is the path for me or not. And, uh, and uh, happily, it, it's been that path. And, uh, and I, I try to get regular, I used to call it my man of the month. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's really important for the people of God to hear the people of God and not just one gender in the pulpit. So I'm, I'm very intentional on regularly having men in the pulpit on a every four to six week basis. And that's really important to me and important for the people. Um, but aside from that, it feels like a very natural thing. And I think my people would say the same thing. 
So how much preaching did you have opportunities to do before you became the senior pastor at LaSalle? Very little. And was it all Very at little. LaSalle as part of your role there? Yeah, uh, almost all of it's been at LaSalle. LaSalle's been my first place. I mean, I was literally graduating yeah. from seminary when their job was open. So um, since then, I've been able to preach in other venues and in other churches and other uh, you know conferences and things. But almost all my preaching experience and, and my formation, importantly, my formation as a preacher has been formed in this community. And when you took the role... You know, the, the prior job you had there, did you, was it expected or did you know that preaching would be part of it? Uh, no, my prior job here was uh, as a music uh, and worship coordinator. Oh, okay. And uh, no, I did not. Uh, I, I mean, I, I preached a couple of times and I still have those sermons. I write my sermons out word for word. And so I have those sermons and I read them now and they're like, a, it's <laughs> like a treatise. It was like this argument that I'm making. It was, uh, and I realized, wow, these people gave me a lot of grace uh, because I was really in my head. And I, I, I think that's a challenge of preaching in general. And, and for me as a woman, I, I look back on it and I realize I was seeking authority in the pulpit. And uh, as a, I guess as a student of the word, I sought authority in um, in saying authoritative things and finding authoritative voices that I could quote um, and not seeing that my own life had a particular authority and not seeing that my own experiences had a particular authority. So that that very thing that had caused my heart to leap up when I heard this woman preach decades ago, I kind of denied that in my own life. And um, so it's been a general kind of uh, fumbling toward realizing that God uses my cooking and God uses my children and God uses, you know, the PTA conference and and kind of recognizing and embracing that that's also where God speaks. Yeah. yeah. I, I was kind of chuckling as this is an aside, but uh, I was kind of chuckling as you were talking about illustrations or examples being golf and sports, because we have a woman who's a therapist in our congregation preaching this weekend. And she sent me her you know, early manuscript this morning and I was reading over it. And there was one little part of it where she's giving examples and they're all female-oriented examples. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, not, uh, a couple of mics supposed to be universal, but I'm, I'm just, just chuckling as you said that because I, I was trying to decide how much I would direct her towards, well, maybe you should include both genders in this. And, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's a reality. It is, yeah. It, it is the reality. And, uh, and frankly, you know, my, one of my disciplines in 2015 was to read the sports page regularly. Hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole group of people for whom that's their world. And, uh, and I need to enter into that, right? Just, just to be culturally relevant, I must enter into that in the same way that I have to push myself to stay, uh, relevant to the 20 somethings, you know, for whom yeah. the digital age is just part of their, that's, that's just the world that they have, right? Um, so I, I think as preachers, the burden is on us and the responsibility, I, I wouldn't even call it a burden because that makes it sound negative, but I think the responsibility is on us to realize that there's a lot of groups out there. And if we want to speak the word of God right now in that intersection of Bible and life in ways that are relevant, 
uh, we've we've got to push ourselves, and that may mean I have to look at some stupid TV for thirty minutes every mm-hmm. week because it's the most popular show in America, right? And I've got to at least have a passing familiarity with this stuff. But um, you know, I, I, we're not in the rarefied world of academia where we can uh, kind of sequester ourselves. We're in the thick of life, and this is where our people are living. You know? Sure, sure. Well, what? Let me transition a little bit because this this will tie back to even what you said about some of your early sermons. But what would you say in LaSalle Street Church? What is what is the role that the sermon plays? What do you hope it accomplishes? Yeah, um, that's a, such a great question. And I think it accomplishes different things. And I think of it in different ways each week. Um, one thing I, I think universally is that it's a way of lifting up where God is speaking to us right now. Uh, so that's in our city, it's in our country, it's in our community. Um, so I, I think that uh, Niebuhr's quote about, you know, the Bible, isn't it Niebuhr that says the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other? I've heard it. Uh, I've heard that attributed so many places. <laughs> yeah, okay. So whoever it is, uh, right. it's that guy. Uh, I um, so, so that seems really important. Where is God speaking right now? And, uh, and how can we um, how can I elevate what God's doing right now? And, and, and think, allow my people to think theologically about what's happening right now. That, uh, for instance, you know, we were talking, um, against the backdrop, of course, of the massacre in Orlando. So helping my people think theologically about what does it look like for, uh, a marginalized community to be the ones targeted. And what does it look like for us to be against a, a presidential uh, backdrop where there's fear-mongering going on? Uh, all those things seem to be, th- those need to be brought into the preaching moment on Sunday morning for, for sure, right? Sure. Um, it's also an opportunity for me to uh, to name and celebrate where God is also speaking in people's lives out there. So for instance, this Sunday, um, we have a, a rev- we, we have been part of resettling two different refugee families in 2016. So um, I'm going to have uh, one of their testimonies being said in the, in the midst of the sermon. And um, so raising up that man and his story against this backdrop is very prescient to me this week. Um, it, and not only his story of of resilience and courage and um, and hope, but also the stories of those people who made that hope possible, who made that hope real by coming alongside, in this case, Refugee One, and promising to, to stay alongside this family while they resettled themselves into a whole new world. Um, so I think the preaching moment is both empowering the people. It's talking about where God is speaking uh, in our congregational life. And then thirdly, I mean, and this is the thing that it's got to do every week, too. It's got to invite us into a deeper love for Jesus and um, and how beautiful Jesus is in this goodness of the Jesus life, you know, in God's life. And that's the narrative that gets beaten down 
day after day. That's the narrative that gets lost in our daily life and our struggle for just our commute to work and uh, our fear in a job that's being downsized. And it's this goodness of God and this splendor of God that's all around us that I, I feel like every week I need to invite people back into that and to remember this is our story. This is God's story in our midst. It's, it's bigger than the newspaper story. It's bigger than the fear-mongering story. It's, you know, it's wider and it's vaster and it's being spoken right now. And it's an invitation to you right now. So I, um, I feel like those are the things that must happen week in and week out. That must happen. Um, and then, you know, interspersed in that, there's a prophetic moment, you know, there's a call to action sometimes. There's a healing that must happen sometimes. There's a, there's a challenge to wise up and get serious and put off your habits of darkness and take up the habits of light. You know, there's those kind of very uh, moral things that, that need to happen. Um, and, and I try to be disciplined about making sure that the sermon is often hitting that on a regular basis. You know, I think it was my preaching, my homiletics professor that said, you know, most of us only have one sermon. Hmm. He said, so, you know, really fight against that tendency to only have one sermon. Uh, the gospel's bigger than your one sermon and your one sweet spot. So, you know, my one sweet spot is God's love. You know, I could preach yeah, that yeah. every week and, and need to preach it every week. But I also recognize that uh, I also need to preach our fra our failings, you know, and and our tendency to sin and our, um, our uh, you know, the hardness of our hearts. I also need to preach that. And um, so anyway, uh, that's yeah. that's the discipline part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so with all of that, you know, and understanding what you're trying to accomplish and then reverting back to what you said earlier about how, um, how your first couple of sermons came across, maybe even before you were in the senior pastor role and really maybe trying to find authority and all that. Yeah. How long, how long do you feel like it took you to find a place where you really settled into your voice as a preacher? Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to say it took me in general about three or four years. Yeah. And I can see that in the progression of my sermons. But I also see it even now, though, to say that I have found kind of my voice, um, which I think is the true voice. You know, your voice and where God is speaking to you is probably the place that you should be speaking from. But that voice is always under attack. I can tell uh, sometimes when I sit down after preaching that I was way too much in my head. And if I'm honest and vulnerable with myself, I realize that the topic was hitting on something close to home for me. And so it was safer to go into my head. It was safer to not dig deeper and find my own experience with that topic, you know, or my own experience with that text. So uh, in some ways, I feel like I kind of found a rhythm after three or four years. And in other ways, I feel like it's a weekly challenge to always remember that if I'm not being vulnerable, I'm not following Jesus. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's both and, isn't it? Yeah, in that way? yeah. that's great. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about your actual sermons. I'm looking at... Uh, the list of sermons on your website, certainly the ones from 2016. It looks like you tend to do more topical series or series around a theme. Like how, how do you, how do you determine what you're going to be preaching on and planning out all that scheduling? 
Yeah. Oh, boy. I would love to hear some of your podcasts of people who are better at scheduling than me. Uh, I, I love hearing about uh, some of the big name guys who who take two, uh, two weekends a year and plot out their entire six to eight month window. You know, uh, that would be awesome. I don't. I, I sit down with my staff or a portion of my staff. A lot of times it's me and my worship director. And uh, and we think about, we go over what we've done in the past so that we're not continuing to repeat things. Again, because we are such a justice-oriented church, we could do justice and missional stuff all year long, you know. Hmm. Um, but we also realize that there are windows of time uh, that that don't lead themselves to justice stuff. Uh, so we take that into consideration. And then we look at things that we've already done and make sure that we're not repeating it. Uh, we try to do things that through Lent uh, have more of a um, a personal discipline and uh, spiritual disciplines focus to them. Uh, in Advent, we try to do things that even though they're they're topical, we, we, we tr- typically stay with lectionary texts on those two seasons. I mean, it's occasionally we don't like our atonement series this, this Lent, but typically we'll, we'll use lectionary at that time. And in Advent, we try to keep, um, we try to stick with those themes of a dawning hope and, um, with a nod toward the family dynamics that often happen around that season and with a nod toward, uh, how hope and unrequited hope or unmet hope uh, go hand in hand, you know, cause that can be a very difficult season for people. So we have those as kind of our big nods in the summer. We try to always do series where, uh, you can miss half the summer and you're still at home. Every time you get here, uh, the series don't build one on top of another. Yeah. They tend to be extremely kind of popcorn, like we call it. And that's our series from July, uh, first week of July until the first week of September, recognizing that in our urban context, um, you know, we'll have people there once every three or four weeks and they call it a day. You know, that's, that's like a regular attender in the summer. Uh, In the fall, we get a a ton of new people coming in, especially students. So I try to always preach what we stand for here. So there's a strong emphasis on going back to our mission statement and back to our values uh, and um, our strategic statements and, and talking about what does it mean to be a church in the neighborhood and what does it mean to be a church that's based on uh, men and women leading together and what does it mean to say that we we believe that it's genuine service with others and not to others. So there's all sorts of ways, of course, that that just gets uh, bigger and bigger every year. Um, so, you know, you, and then of course in the fall every year in November, we have a stewardship series hmm. and we have all saints day. And so, you know, you, you kind of put in those big building blocks and you're left with about maybe 16 to 20 weeks a year that then you do series that are just because you think they're really important to do. Yeah. Uh, so a series around black lives matter and wait a minute, don't all lives matter. And so what does that mean to say, well, at this point in time, these people matter most, you know, and kind of getting into that preferential treatment for the poor, <laughs> you know, to use the Catholic jargon on that. And, um, you know, so actually when you kind of space out the year, you don't have that much flexibility. I mean, there's some, but, uh, you know, you're really kind of interpreting seasons that are already set in many ways. Yeah. 
And, and it looks like you preach pretty regularly, like maybe three times a month. Yep. Three times a month is my goal. Uh, I tend to preach a little less in the summer because I do a lot of outside preaching in the summer. I do a lot of uh, conferences and things like that. So uh, in the summer, I take it down a bit. But uh, three times a month is uh, is what my contract says I should be preaching. Gotcha. <laughs> well, then kind of that in mind and even like this knowing how you plan things out. Let's let's talk through like what your process looks like for any given sermon. I don't know how far in advance you're working out, you know, if you're doing one at a time or knowing what your next eight are or whatever that might be. But why don't you just walk us through how you put together, you know, generally what your process might be to put together a single sermon. Yeah. So I've got, uh, I, I normally have my series worked out with the scripture texts in advance. So that's let's say an average series is four to six weeks. Okay. So I've got that on the docket and we've got all of our extra stuff. We have a 75 minute service. Uh, we have communion twice a month. We have healing prayer once a month. So those elements take about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, typically my sermon time is 25 to 35 minutes, roughly 25 on those weeks when we've got those big things like communion or healing prayer a little bit, I have a little bit more space on those off weeks, uh, unless we have a baby baptism or a dedication. So all that goes on our schedule, a Google Doc that is shared among all of our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, uh, I've got my scripture text there. I, I, I tend to write every week. So, and I tend to write on Thursday afternoons and all day Friday. My goal is to finish on Fridays. Um, that doesn't always happen. And then I feel very guilty because <laughs> <And then laughs> I, I really felt like the Lord pressed upon me that Saturday really should be the Sabbath. And uh, I really try to honor that commandment. And um, it's to my loss, right, when I don't. It's, it's no sweat off God's yeah. back. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's no skin off his nose. It's, it's my own well-being, right, that suffers. Um, so with that in mind, I read through and pray through the text, uh, seriously on Sunday after preaching the last sermon on Monday and Tuesday, those are just kind of my times to let the text teach me on Wednesday by noon. So today by noon, I need to have my title and I need to have a fairly good direction because I need to tell my worship director, uh, where I'm going to be ending the sermon. And uh, so that he can kind of get his head in the game on what's the sermon response. We see those as very fitted together, you know, the sermon and what comes immediately after. Um, Then uh, I start Wednesday afternoon and Wednesday night. uh, If I don't have a church meeting, which happens fairly regularly, of course, um, I start doing my serious text work. I have a few great resources. If if preachers out there, if your listeners are not using Logos, mm-hmm. um, man, I would just say that is worth every dime I've ever spent with them. It's an online database uh, that allows you access to pretty much whatever resources you're willing to pay for and download onto your computer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you guys probably talk about it a lot. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's been, I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I'm always surprised by how many people still love their bookshelves and books are great, but yeah, I'm, I'm in your camp here. I love Bible software. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, that becomes a starting point for me. Um, 
but it's only a, it's only kind of to get get the playing field, you know. It's really for me just to make sure that the exegetical direction I'm hoping to go to is is kosher, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just want to make sure that I'm in line, that I'm not too wacky on a few things. Uh, and then from that point, I don't go back to it. Uh, I tend to then, uh, I, I try to marinate on that on Thursday. And I think about uh, television shows or, uh, and some of this has been done in advance when I was setting up the series. If something really great came to me, like, oh my gosh, How I Met Your Mother really has this great episode that makes sense here, you know, uh, then I'll kind of note those things. But Thursday is my day to do a deeper dive in the cultural relevance. It's uh, kind of, uh, you know, the bad news in, in our day, right, or the good news in our day. And uh, so I'm trying to pull together some some short stories or some poetry or some some uh, some images that uh, that I think speak to whatever that I my purpose statement is for this week, you know. And then in that perfect world, on Friday morning, I wake up and I'm feeling great and I've got energy and it's a beautiful day. <laughs> I don't come into the office on Fridays. I try to not schedule any other stuff on Friday. And then I start writing. And uh, and I should have about eight, eight to ten hours of writing. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, for me, maybe that's because I, I feel the need to write it out. I, I don't read it, but for me, the act of writing and the act of figuring out the words I want to use um, really are important to me. Um, so anyway, I write it out word for word. Uh, again, all things being good, I, I print that out on Friday. I look at it maybe a couple of times on Saturday, and then Sunday morning I get up around 5 to 5.15, and then I start reading through it. I do my keynote because I do use a lot of images in the service. I get those slides in order, get it all worked out, and uh, get to church about 8.15 for my nine, my first. We have two services on Sunday, and that's about 45 minutes uh, before my, my first service. So you said you don't go into the office on Friday. Do you do all your work just in the quiet of a home study, or do you like to sit in a coffee shop, or where do you do all that? Yeah, it depends. Uh, my home is the best place. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I try to to do it at home. Of course, you know, at home, you've got laundry calling you. And, you know, Anne Lamont once said that, you know, nothing like uh, having a deadline to really get your house clean. And uh, and so that happens. That affects me. You know, I I have this burning desire to make coconut uh, cookies or macaroons or something. And, you know, so if I find that I can't, uh, and that's actually a good time for me, you know, like that's a great stopping point to, to work for two or three hours, get to a real place where you're about to pivot and, uh, and then, you know, go into the kitchen and cook for about 45 minutes and then come back to it can be a super, it can be a great, great gift. Um, but then sometimes, you know, I go over the edge, yeah, <laughs> yeah. then I got to change my location. <laughs> But there, yeah, there is something good about the act of getting up and walking around and new illuminations come. I, yeah. I've never baked macaroons personally in the midst of sermon <laughs> prep, but I could see how that could be one of the examples. I've, I've certainly had epiphanies with grilling. All right. So there you go. It's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of my thing. Um, you know, I, I at one point really uh, wanted to get in a pastor's group. 
where we could, uh, you know, jawbone about the services and our upcoming texts. And, uh, and I still long for that. I, um, I've never made it happen. Uh, and, and right now I feel like the Lord's kind of pressing me to make an interfaith group happen. Hmm. You know, I've, uh, I've befriended a few, uh, Muslim clerics and, uh, and also a few rabbis in town here. And I think, oh, you know, maybe we could get together even quarterly and just talk about some of the great stories that are the backbone of our faith through the Old Testament, you know, and still think that that would be such an enriching experience, uh, not only for preaching, but uh, but personally, you know, to kind of push myself into breaking some barriers down with the other. Um, so, you know, I'll keep you posted on that if yeah. if, uh, if that ends up happening, because I think that would be such a important gift uh, for the clergy to be able to offer their people, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I've certainly have talked to a few people who have that kind of group, especially those who do lectionary, because they can talk about the lectionary together. Um, but I, I don't know that I've talked to anybody who does that in the context of interfaith. So that that would be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, fascinating me, to be part of and fascinating yeah. to talk to other people about. Right. It kind of is a brain twist. Yeah. And in a good way. Yeah. Well, let me let me work back through this schedule and just ask a few questions about it. So you talk about how Sunday to Tuesday, you know, starting Sunday afternoon, you just read that text and you're praying through it. Is that almost all in your head? You read it and you're just looking for areas of tension or growth for you? Or are you, are you scrawling down notes during any of that? Or is it really just um, kind of ruminating? Yeah, you know, my, uh, my devotional time, uh, my practice has been this year to use the Book of Common Prayer. Mm -hmm. So I use that. And then at, at one point in that, uh, in that regular practice, I pray through this text. And when I pray through the text, I use Lectio Divina for uh -huh. the most part. So in that model, you know, you, you just read the text first and then you pray through the text and you see if there's a, an aspect of it that kind of grabs you. And then you just stay with that. And uh, so that's what I've been doing. And right now, working through the, uh, for this Sunday, it's the text of the um, prodigal son or the uh, prodigal father, however you want to understand that. Um, and so I, you know, it's been just a way of seeing different points of view in that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what I do. It's, uh, it, I, I try not to think about, hey, how does this preach? Because as a preacher, I think, you know, you're always listening, right? You're always listening right. for the story that'll preach. And uh, I think for me, in, in different points in my life, I've short-circuited the, the deeper work of God in my life when I'm immediately moving toward a utilitarian purpose for that insight. You know, I feel like first the text has got to work on me and my own spiritual walk. And then only secondly, can the text be used for the people, um, at least, and I know people can feel differently about that. That's just how uh, I feel about it in my own walk, you know, that I've got to sit under the authority of the text before I try to put that text in authority over people. Yeah. I, that There's a slow approach into the text there. I'm making up terminology here, but it's it's interesting to me, and this is not fair and true across the board, but I feel like what one of the themes I've noticed with the women who I've interviewed here is they tend to go in with a slower approach early on to the text and talk more about some of that reflection before they get into the technical work, so to speak. 
Uh, I just think I just think that's uh, uh, maybe it's coincidence. I know it's not true across the board for all the men and all the women, um, uh-huh. but it's certainly something I've noted. Uh, I think it's a good thing. It's something I've been trying to learn from and not doing well because I just want to jump in uh-huh. myself. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I think that is interesting, uh, and I would like to talk to other women about that. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about it being um, a division that way necessarily. Um, you know, Bill Hybels, he, he was very helpful for me because, you know, whatever spiritual practice you do, you kind of want to make it normative for everybody because Mm -hmm. the Lord meets you in that way. Right. Um, and you think, oh, it's good news for me. It's good news for everybody. And, and Bill Hybels talks about him, him being such a, uh, an A type personality and such an out there personality. And he talks about his struggle with silence and his struggle with, uh, just deep meditative prayer. And he said at some point in his life, he realized, you know what, that's just not how God meets him. It's not how he's hardwired. So instead of trying to like make this ill-fitting practice on his life, he started to lean in to where he often felt God you know, spoke to him and kind of jettisoned that uh, that more introspective uh, discipline, whatever that was. And I think it was silence. Um, and you know what? That was that was hopeful and helpful for me because uh, for me, it's been a spiritual practice. That slowness has been a spiritual practice that curbed my um, extrovert tendencies and curbed some of my hubris that I am trying to always push against, right? Um, but I find Bill Hybels' ministry and his walk, whenever I've heard him speak about his his devotional practices, I have felt very moved by how he lives out the faith. And, and so it was helpful for me to hear that just because it was the way God chose to curb my own or even help curb my own, you know, uh, tendencies doesn't mean that that's the way it is for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I don't know why I felt the need to say that. That's good. That, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so talk a little bit then about once you get to Wednesday, Thursday, you know, you talked about how helpful Lagos is and what, mm-hmm. What uh, what kind of work do you do in that? Because I know you can do word studies, you can do cross references, you can do commentary. Like, what specifically do you use that as you're trying to get a hold more of the text? Yeah, um, well, you know, sadly, the the the, the difficulty of logos for me is that. Uh, pretty much all the uh, all the references and the commentaries on there uh, tend to be from white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's why I, I read through just what they have said about the text and kind of their various interpretations of it. So that's kind of 101 for me, just to, again, get a, a common thing. I, I typically use Calvin. I typically use um, uh, the American Commentator series. I use uh, the Application Commentary uh, I use interpretation commentary. So those are kind of my go-to. Yeah. If I'm preaching out of the Old Testament, uh, I have the JPS, uh, the Jewish yeah. Publication Society. I really like their work. And so I'll always get what, um, what you know, the Jewish understanding is of that text. Um, I don't typically do the word commentaries until I kind of have a clear idea of my through line. Uh, because I can get lost in entomology, right? So mm. um, after I get a through line, then I, I do a deeper word search uh, and a word study on 
Um, just those texts, you know, just those verses. Sometimes I, I've got a big story, but I don't know my through line yet. Like today, I, I still don't know my through line really on this prodigal son text. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> enough said about that. Uh, so th- that's what I tend to use on that. And uh, and I and I'm such a novice in it, even though I've been using logos for five years or so now, I'm still a novice at, at how I use the, the depth of those resources. You know, I, I don't really put my sermon together there. I'm always copying and pasting and putting it in a Word doc. So I have all these resources at my fingers when I when I go to really, you know, put it all together. Um, but that's what I use logos for. Yeah. And then I just hold it, you know, it just becomes like a holding, you know, like almost a, a notebook for a bit until I can get the other, uh, things, cultural things in place. Which nice segue. Cause that goes to my next question. You talked about the cultural things. Do you have, you know, you talked about how I met your mother, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, which I've never seen in my life. I'll tell you, maybe I'm, maybe I need more <laughs> with the culture here, but, uh, I'm aware of it, but you, uh, you talked about that. So you talked about how sometimes even in advance, you'll have ideas, uh, mm-hmm. do you have a way of, I mean, are those just in your memory or do you have a way where you're capturing those ideas and storing them? Like, do you have your cultural exegetical library, just like you have your theological oh, <laughs> library? Yeah. You know, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome if you had that, you know, if you just had this, this, uh, you know, file system, you know, one time I heard Rob Bell preach or, uh, preach to a group of preachers, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe. And he talked about that being how he organizes stuff. Yeah. Buckets and he chunks. Just, oh God, it would be so terrific. Um, so I've tried all sorts of ways. I use pocket, you know, mm-hmm. and I use Evernote. And, uh, like I'll, I'll, I'm a voracious reader. If there's one thing that has been a truism of my life, I, I just, I am, I don't know. I read several newspapers a day, almost front to back. I, uh, I read uh, probably two nonfiction books a month. I read, um, a fiction book about in the summer, it may be every 10 days in the winter. It's a little less, but anyway, all to say that I've got like a ton of stuff. Right. Uh, and, and holding on to that has always been my challenge. So I, I tend to make notes in the back of those books, you know, like, wow, these are some great ideas out of these books. And I tend to take a photo of that on my phone and uh, that's where it stops. <laughs> it doesn't even make it into Evernote. It's just a photo on it your phone. Doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't make it into Evernote. Although now there's a new moleskin notebook yeah. that is is syncable to Evernote. And you just buy the special pen and the special notebook and you make your notes in there and it will do it all for you. It does the work of putting it into Evernote for you. So I purchased one of those and it's sitting right there on my desk still in the shrink wrap. Um, you know, I, that's uh, the, even having to articulate this out loud is uh, maybe the nudge I need. Because uh, right now it literally it's just thinking, wow, I think Jonathan Franzen had something about this prodigal dad in, uh, in Purity, you know, his latest novel. Yeah. And so uh, I'll go back and I'll look in the back of that purity book and uh, and maybe I've made some notes about that. 
but that's kind of I, I'm my worst enemy on this. You know, it's uh, it's it's really frustrating to have it almost within reach, right? <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you still got time. I mean, you heard Rob Bell talk about it 10 to 12 years ago, but you could still implement it. <laughs> I could. I could still do it. Oh, gosh, that would be such a that would be a great day. I know that I would be a happier person. Yeah. You seem pretty happy already. So, well, but I mean, wouldn't that be ideal? I think I could cut down that Thursday, like cultural scramble stuff. I think I could get it down to just a couple hours if, yeah. if I kept those kind of records, you know. Well, then let's talk about the last bit of that, the Friday bit, which is you write it out. Do you, this is, this is my, this is my question that people can either answer really quickly and concisely or people fumble through because they realize they don't know how this happens, which is what, uh, what kind of structure, like how does your sermon, how does the, the process of thought or the progress of thought come together? Do you fit it into a set structure of some kind or does it just emerge? Yeah. So there, that is one of the things where I do feel like I found a rhythm, and if it's not broke, I'm not going to try and fix it, you know? Yeah. Uh, Frank Thomas was my homiletics professor, uh, and he's a great African-American preacher who wrote a book, uh, The Role of Celebration or something. They ain't, Anyway, something about celebration. And in there, he talks about the purpose statement of a sermon. And it's a very straightforward thing. I tell all my interns this. In fact, I was working with my intern yesterday about it. It's This is my purpose statement that I begin every sermon with. I propose to show blank to the end that hears will blank. And those are really intentional. I propose to show whatever I'm proposing to show. You know, I propose to show the goodness of God is all around us. To the end that my hearers will, that means my hearers will have some sort of definitive action, definitive concrete, that they'll be able to answer the so what question, you know, in some sort of practical ways. Uh, so I propo- propose to show God's goodness is all around us. And that's kind of actually a very weak one. It needs to be way more tight than that. Uh, but to the end that my hearers will step out in God's goodness uh, uh, play God or pay God's goodness forward, whatever that action is, you know? Yeah. So that's my, that's my big statement. And I try not to, I resist in my good days, I resist the urge to write anything until that sentence is really crystal clear for me. And, and so I, I, to show somebody something means that I'm not just telling them. I've got an illustration. I've got a image. I've got an experience that they're going to live into around that thing that I'm trying to put forward this week. Um, and then it also means that I don't, uh, start writing until not only do I have that, that experience or that image that should have a visceral, emotional kind of pull to it. But I also don't start writing until I can answer for myself the so what question. Um, because I think a lot of preachers, we have a challenge with that so what question. Yeah. Our, our sermon sounds great, but so what? 
you know, so what? So why come here to hear it? Uh, why hear this in community? Why did you get a, could, is this something that you could have actually read in a devotional book someplace uh, by yourself? Is it something that actually you could have just read in the New York Times so I can put it all together? Because David Brooks has some really kicking col- columns, you know. He does um, lately, doesn't he? Yeah, I know. I love that guy. And actually, I use him as a resource a lot, right? So what makes this different? Um, so that's my kind of, that's that's my purpose statement. Um, but then beyond that, I think very critically about what is the bad news that the good news is the antidote for? You know, so what is the crappy thing that's happening that the good news cracks open for us? Um, this week, it won't be hard to find the bad news, right? We live in a world of violence, and my series is on speaking Jesus. So at some level, it's speaking Jesus into a world of violence. What does that mean to do that credibly, to do that real, to do that in a world where people don't want to hear that good news, you know? Um, but So I have to figure out the good news, uh, the, the bad news in our time, the bad news in the text, and then the good news, the good news of that text in that time, but then the good news and why it matters to us now. And, and I'm trying to say that in a fresh way, in a way that might catch them off balance, in a way that might be as arresting. Uh, I mean, it won't be as arresting as Jesus listeners, but uh, in at least I, I need to stand in the shadow of making that shocking and surprising in the way that Jesus listeners found him so shocking and surprising, right? Yeah. So that's the goal. And of course, you know, if you come 33% there, then, you know, you're probably, you're probably, your batting average is probably okay to use a sports analogy. <laughs> well, speaking of sports analogy, I was going to say, of course, you know, that Frank Thomas was also the first baseman for the Chicago White Sox, right? I know. You, you I know, know that. All right. Well, yes. Then. But uh, different Frank Thomas. Right. I, I learned that though, after Googling him to find one of his sermons and realized, ooh, I think I should know this. <laughs> um, yeah. So this, I propose the show statement, does that emerge on Friday morning or does that emerge Wednesday when you talk about the title and direction you're coming with? Yeah, it generally is not Wednesday, but it's yeah. often Thursday night. Okay. Um, I try to make it my goal to not go to bed Thursday night before I have that, that purpose statement. Yeah. Because if I can wake up with it and that's on the page in front of me Friday morning, then I feel like it's going to be a good day, you know? It's going to be a really good day because uh, like like most preachers, I think, you know, there's way more good ideas than anybody wants to hear. <laughs> you know, yeah, I got yeah. way more good things to say than people right. have time. <laughs> you guys have no idea what you're missing out on. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes <laughs> I tell them that. You have no idea how many ideas I put to rest uh, <laughs> so that you can get out in 75 minutes. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that's why we have blogs, right? <laughs> it's <go>. the overflow. <laughs> well, um is that is that Frank Thomas book they like to just keep praising God? Is that Yes, that's yeah. it. Thank yeah. you. That's it. That's been mentioned and, a few times and I need to read that one. Oh, it's so good. You know, and there's other people, uh, like Fred Craddock has a, a good book about preaching too. Um, and he uses kind of the same idea. You know, it's it's a narrative style of preaching, of course, and it's and it's this idea that uh, you want to you want to bring your 
your your listeners to a place where they really want to hear. So so where's the hope? You know, so what happens next? I mean, tell me it's the Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, you know, um, and and Frank Thomas just says it in different language. But but the idea is that, man, the world is really crummy. Um, there's a lot of bad news. You know, death happens. Violence happens. It's despair all around. I mean, how are we going to deal with this? And man, this is the thing that happened to me this week, or this is what happened to so-and-so. And and where's the hope? You know, and you want to have people ready for the hope. They've got to hear, uh, they, they've got to be longing for the hope before you lay the hope on the table, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's that narrative arc. And Frank Thomas does it in a way that's super embodied and, and very visceral. And, um, and, you know, other, other folks do it a little bit more, um, uh, in, in their heads, you know, but, it, but it's okay. I mean, I, I love their stuff too, but it's, it's all getting us to the same place that there's a narrative arc and, uh, and good literature follows that and good storytelling follows that arc. So it's just a way of helping you find your own arc week in and week out, you know? Yeah, that's good stuff. Thank you. You're preaching yeah. to us now. I like it though. Ah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, it, our- this is totally sideways. Oh, it's not really totally sideways, but this just mm-hmm. this is by happenstance. After I was already scheduling with you, I ran across this new book that you're a contributor to. I, I, is it an IVP book? But it just talks about uh, creation versus evolution. Yeah. I haven't I haven't ordered it. I haven't read it yet. I'm very interested in it. But uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, um, I was so privileged to to submit an essay to that. You know, I, I think uh, in our evangelical world, uh, it's unfortunate that sometimes we feel like science is uh, antagonistic to faith, and that uh, one person you have to choose one or the over the other. And as Christians, you know, it's sometimes hard for us to read especially the Genesis accounts and and understand how can science and what uh, specifically what evolution, uh, how can that square with this account that we read in Genesis 1 to 3 or uh, Genesis 1 through 7 into the flood account. And uh, so BioLogos has been a great, um, a great uh, organization that's been trying to talk about that. And there's some great scientists and theologians and just regular uh, Joe Schmoes like me, uh, pastors who have been involved in that. Uh, Francis Collins, who is the head of the Human Genome Project, um, was the guy who um, got it all started. And he is a main contributor in this book, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution. And it's a rich, (laughs) yeah, and it's a wonderful read. I'll tell you, um, reading Francis Collins and he's such a, he's such a wonderful Christian and he's such a wonderful scientist. And, uh, he's one of the big brains of our generation, right? Uh, N.T. Wright is in that book. Again, one of the big brains theologically of our generation. And, uh, and they just talk about how science and, and, uh, faith need not be incompatible. That uh, that there's a, a richness um, that science can bring to our faith life, and then just so so briefly, I'll, I'll tell you, my faith has exploded by watching these um, images coming from the Hubble telescope. Mm. That we are looking back thirteen and a half million years in time to seeing these universes created is mind blowing to me, but it's also heart expanding to me. 
that this is the God that we follow, this God who was vaster and limitless and um, so, so beyond our little American context and our, our little petty disputes that this is a God who breathed all this into existence and that in our generation, we are having the opportunity to see some of that unfold. Uh, some of that past, you know, unfold in our lifetime is just, um, man, I, I just feel sad for, uh, for Christians that, that, that can't experience that because for me, it's, uh, and I'll, I'll stop at this, but Christmas Eve, I played, uh, the Hubble images at the beginning of the sermon and all the lights were out and we just had these images of space. And in the darkness, I recited John's prologue. In the beginning was the word. Mm. And I'll tell you, I could barely get through just that, that text with those images in front of us on the night in which we are proclaiming the Son of God was born into this world. Um, you know, it, it, I don't know. I think God's offering us a gift here that, uh, that I, I hope that we can unwrap because it's, it's beautiful and powerful and, um, anyway, heart expanding in every way. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's good. I'm glad I ran across that so I could ask you about it because I I wasn't even aware of it until, I don't know, two weeks ago. Thank you. Thanks. Um, well, we'll, we'll tie it up here, but I know that, uh, I know that you wrote another book, if you want to mention that, but even if you could tell us, you know, the website for the church, if you have a blog, your Twitter, all that, just in case people want to yeah. follow what you're up. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I am, uh, we have another book uh, that I'm writing with, a, or that I've written with a woman in our church by the name of Ami Campbell. It's, uh, it's on radical generosity called Love Let Go. Um, how radical generosity changes the world, and it's uh, we came into a, a pot of money at one point six million dollars a couple of years ago, and we first tied that to our people by giving away one hundred sixty thousand, and then proceeded to give away the rest of it. Hmm. And uh, it's just a, a story about our journey. So look for that. It's uh, uh, going to be published by Erdman's next spring. Uh, our website is lasalstreetchurch.org. www.lasalstreetchurch.org. I blog from that website and I tweet at Rev Rev Truax. So any of those would be great ways of getting to know more about this, uh, this great community of faith here and, uh, and the kind of uh, ministry we believe God's calling us to do. Well, Laura, thank you so much. This this has been, uh, it's been fun just to hear. I, I, I just enjoy seeing how different people's passion and heart for preaching comes through when I do this. And it's, it's pretty clear and evident with you. Oh, well, thank you. Again, I so appreciate, John, the opportunity to do this. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. Laura, thanks for making the time. Thanks for sharing some of your process. Uh, It's always fun to hear somebody who's got just a settled-in process like that, who's been doing this and and worked through the craft, and at the same time is really open and trying to figure out how can they do this better and better. But I love the intention that Laura brings to how she puts her sermons together week after week after week. Uh, you can find any of the resources that Laura mentioned if you go to sermonsmith.com or any of our previous guests. As always, if you're willing to tweet, if you're willing to Facebook, if you're willing to, I, I don't know, Pinterest, whatever it is you want to do to help others hear about the podcast, thank you. 